0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm delighted to be joined by two very esteemed co-hosts with me today. First of all is Sharon Bersall. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead on the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. She's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section, Hello Sharon, how are you? Hi Martin, I'm great, good it's, to be here. It's the first week of teaching, How has teaching been going so far? It is,
2: I, I've got to say it is fantastic. I'm teaching two courses this semester and the one thing that we have at Crawford are amazing students, so getting to know the students, hearing about their experience and what they're bringing with them, what to get out of their, their education here is really exciting, so it's been a great week.
1: Great. And our second uh, co-host is Bob Cotton. We haven't seen Bob on the pod for a while. Uh, welcome back, Bob. Hi, Martin. Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. Bob is a visiting fellow at Crawford School. He's a former diplomat, done consultancy work for the ANAO, DFAT and AusAid. Um, is Fantastic to have you around. How has the start to your year been? Something special happened,
3: right? Indeed, Martin, as you, oh, I, as you well know, uh, my fiancé and I got married early in January, on the 5th of January, in hey, Sydney Royal Botanical Gardens. So personally, it was a great start to the year, and two years ago, we never thought that we'd end up doing that. So while we, us personally, feel great at the start of the year, I have to say I'm dismayed at the unannounced election campaign at the federal level, which is currently underway. I'm getting very sick and tired of seeing all these ads purporting to be from government departments, and they are from government departments, but we all know what's going on. And I think I'm getting extremely irritated by it. And we've got a long way to go yet before the election is actually held. So watch that space. And the other thing that just snowed in passing, sadly, George Pearl yesterday reminds me of the Royal Commission on the Sex Abuse of Children. Think of the many other Royal Commissions we've had going recently. The Hain Royal Commission into Banking, Finance, Insurance and so on. One announced a disability. I start to wonder what's happened to the country. We need so many Royal Commissions to to run the place. Anyway, I feel great. Thank you.
1: Well, it's fantastic to have you back. And, you know, regular listeners will know in the first part of the pod, we talk about some of the sort of uh, big policy issues that have played out in the previous week. So Bob, you've talked about you know something that's obviously caught your eye. Let me turn to you, Sharon. What has caught your eye in the wide world of policy over the last week?
2: Well, there has been so much happening, hasn't there? As, as Bob said, we have uh, the election campaign that's not yet an election campaign. And so lots of discussion and issues and debates coming out of that. But... The issue that has really caught my attention is an issue that I think may have gone under the radar for lots of people. And so I wanted to, to, to shine a spotlight light on this. And this was a survey that was has been done and the findings released this week around um, the experiences of principals in schools. And what is really alarming about this survey are the very high levels of violence that principals are facing on a day-to-day basis while doing their jobs. So the survey has revealed you know, just the stress that principals are under, um, the The issues that they have to deal with um, in relation to irate parents and how that has, for some principals, a disturbing number turned physical, but also um, physical violence and verbal abuse from students. So I think this is, as I said, it's an issue that I think is going under the radar. But for me, it's a huge issue. You know, we talk so much about the quality of education, the importance of education, but clearly there are some things that are going very, very wrong within the education system. Um, And I've certainly seen a little bit of this in the research that I've done with children when they talk about some of the challenges they face within the education system. And perhaps this relates to that Issue that Bob just raised around what is going on within a society when we have the institutionalized abuse of children. Um, and certainly the conviction of George Pell is is something for us all to give pause to thought, pause for thought about, not just for the conviction, but the cover ups that have been around that. Um, we now have the beginnings of the Royal Commission into Aged Care and already horrifying stories coming out about the way in which human beings in our society are treating one another. And I think this story about the violence that principals in schools are facing is part of that broader picture. You know, we don't want to be alarmist. There are lots of good stories coming out. But I think we do have a fundamental question to ask ourselves around the values um, that our society is basing itself on today.
1: What do you think is happening, in society, for you know uh, this, these types of things to be playing out for principals? I mean, presumably, it has. The report highlights an increase in that. Why is that happening?
2: Yeah, so the report has has um, suggested a, a quite dramatic increase in that um, in recent years, and I think this is one of the interesting methodological issues about a survey. It tells us things that are very, very important, but doesn't necessarily get to underlying causal factors. And to me, what this survey tells us more than anything is that we actually need to know what is happening. I could speculate about it, but I think what we need is is some good research-based evidence around what's going on here and what's leading to this and what we do to shift it. Um, and to my knowledge, we don't have enough of that knowledge at the moment, but we need it and we need it urgently.
1: Well, it's an important research project for someone ahead. So two very big issues there that our uh, presenters have flagged up. What about you, listeners? What has caught your eye in the wide world of policy over the last week? Let us know on our fantastic Facebook podcast group. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. It's a great way to uh, get your ideas for the pod directly to us, to chat to other listeners and indeed to uh, chat to some of the team involved with putting the podcast together. Now today we want to take our cue from the Pitch Up Boys and ask the question, what are we going to do about the (laughs) ridge? I think Sharon was worried which special (laughs) boys song I might be referring to there. I was
2: wondering, but that's fine. It's heading in a good direction.
1: In January, Dan Riffle, who is the new policy advisor to the US Democrat Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, made a provocative point that every billionaire is a policy failure. But in fact, the number of billionaires in the world has never been higher. In 2017, there were 2,754 billionaires globally. There's none in the room here. Let me just clarify that. <laughs> uh, as of January this year, according to an Oxfam report on inequality, some 26 people owned the same wealth as the 38 Billion people who make up the poorest half of humanity. Uh, Yet the Panama and Paradise papers revealed uh, tax avoidance practices are absolutely rife among the rich. And uh, Davos, the historian Rutger Bregman, told an audience of billionaires and the global elite to stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. So today we want to ask: is every billionaire a policy failure? How can governments around the world adjust their tax policies to reduce inequality? And is it even morally appropriate for anyone to be a billionaire? Do they need that much money? And we've got a great lineup of guests to discuss these questions, haven't we, Sharon?
2: We have indeed. So we have a, an all-Crawford line-up today, which is very exciting um, and speaks to the richness of research and, and intellectual activity within the school here. So our our first panellist is Professor Bob Brunig, a dear colleague of mine. Um, Bob is Director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute here at Crawford. He's published in over 50 international academic journals in economics and public policy. His research interests include labour economics, the economics of the household, empirical industrial organisation and econometric theory. Um, And for anyone who has had the pleasure of meeting Bob, he has some strong and sometimes provocative ideas. So Bob is a great person to have on the panel. And a little known fact, Bob began life as an anthropologist.
1: Well, well, I did not know that. You learn something new every day.
2: Our second speaker today is Ida Kubashevsky who is an associate pro- professor here at the Crawford School, a really fascinating research profile. She was previously an assistant research professor and fellow at the Institute of Sustainable Solutions at Portland State University. She's co-editor-in-chief of the, the magazine Journal, which is a, a hybrid publication called called Solutions and that's a publication that draws on both research and policy solutions. She's the co-founder and former managing editor of the Encyclopedia of the Earth and her research interests include ecological economics, ecosystem services and climate change.
1: Now, we were supposed to get Dr. John Fowson of Per Capita on our panel today, and I was really excited to have John on board. But unfortunately, he's had to drop out this week. We're hoping to get him back for another podcast soon. But uh, this week... Uh, Sharon, you have kindly agreed to step into his his place and try to fill his boots.
2: Agreed is a very interesting word there, Martin. I'm not sure if agreed is the correct word, but yes, I am going to try to fill the very large boots of John Falzon. I'm I'm really disappointed that John can't be with us. I think the conversation between John and Bob Brunick would have been really interesting. Um, but I'm going to try to step into the breach and see how we go.
1: Well, hopefully, we can resurrect that one in the future. Uh, so, before we actually hear that conversation, uh, a reminder to our listeners please do get in contact with us. We are uh, always delighted to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter, where we're apps Policy Forum, or you just shoot through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And I should say as well that uh, I'm going to step aside for the interview, but I'm going to hand over to my colleague Julia Ahrens to uh, take the hot seat. Uh, with Bob here. Before we hear that discussion, a reminder to our listeners, please do get in contact with us. We love hearing from you. You can find us on Facebook, join the gang at Policy Forum Pod, uh, hit us up on Twitter, we're Apps Policy Forum, or just shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And stick around after the main discussion, because we're going to be going over some of your questions and comments, and indeed some of your suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hand over to Bob and Yulia.
4: Welcome, Ida. Hello, Bob.
0: Thanks for having me, Julia. Sharon. Hi, Julia. Great to be
2: here.
4: Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's dive right in. As Martin mentioned in the intro, as of 2017, there are 2,754 billionaires globally, and that's more than ever before. As a response, Alexandria Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez in the US demanded a top marginal tax rate of 70% for incomes above 10 million US dollars, followed by Dan Riffle, her policy advisor, saying that every billionaire is a policy failure. So what is your opinion? Is every billionaire a policy failure?
0: I guess we all have days where we say things that we regret. Um, I don't think one can say that every billionaire is a policy failure. Uh, I was thinking about that as I was walking over here. And Suppose that I had an invention um, that was worth $110,000 that I could sell to each individual for $110,000 and I um, hired you, Julia, and I said, I'll pay you $100,000 to make one of these and I'm going to keep $10,000 and I'm going to give you $100,000. That's a pretty good deal. As a worker, you would take that. Um, If you look at people like Bill Gates, Stephen Jobs, they created 250,000 jobs. You multiplied that by the $10,000 they keep from each product. That's over a billion dollars. So a um, billion dollars sounds like a lot. But uh, I think it's just – what you're looking at is the pointy end of, of success, at least for some – in some cases.
2: I, I think Bob's – Right. And it's not all the time that I agree with Bob, but I think Bob's right here that it's not necessarily the case that every billionaire represents a policy failure because it depends what sits behind that. But I think it's a great quote. I think it's a great comment because what it does is make us start to talk about the nature of inequality globally. So is it that every billionaire is a a policy failure? Probably not. But is growing
5: inequality in the world
2: today a policy failure? And I would say yes, that is.
5: So although I do agree, um, my, and I think it's an a fortunate way actually of stating it because not every billionaire is a policy problem, but I think the fact that we have so many billionaires is a policy issue. Um, and the fact that inequality is so great – around the world is a big issue. So Oxfam came out with a report I think it was last year where they showed that eight people around the world own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of humanity. That's not acceptable. There's no need for eight people to own that much. And um there's a book that was published quite a few years ago now um, called The Spirit Level by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. And they talk about all the issues with inequality. And they show that, for example, things like, you know, an index that has life expectancy, maths, literacy, infant mortality, homicide, imprisonment, teenage births, trust, obesity, mental illness, social mobility um, is impacted quite significantly by inequality, where on the other hand, if you compare that index to GDP growth, there's almost no correlation. So it's not the money, it's the inequality. And that's true for both the people that are on the poor end of that spectrum, but also the people that are on the rich end of the spectrum. Um, So although it's an unfortunate way to put it, I don't agree necessarily with how he stated it. And I agree that maybe not every billionaire is a policy problem. I think overall, though, it is a big policy problem.
0: I think it's important that we get the facts about inequality right, though. I think Mm -hmm. it's worth talking a little bit about about the facts Mm -hmm. about inequality. Um, And the first fact that I think a lot of people don't understand is that between 1970 and today, worldwide inequality has actually gone down tremendously. Um, And I'm talking here about income inequality. And income inequality is a good thing to talk about because we can measure it really consistently across across countries and across lots of different time periods and lots of different people. Um, And and the main reason it's gone down is because of the big growth in Asia. So we've seen poor people. We've seen people in poor countries getting richer faster than we've seen people in rich countries getting richer on average over the last 50 years. So I think there's this belief that inequality has gone way up. And at least in terms of income inequality, on a worldwide scale, income inequality has actually gone down. Um, What has gone up is I think two things have, have gone up and then there's some things we actually don't know. So one thing that's gone up is within country inequality has gone up. So for example, within the United States... Within France, inequality has gone up in the last 20 or 30 years. Now, in Australia, that actually doesn't appear to be true. In in, in inequality in Australia, Roger Wilkins wrote a paper um, just at the end of last year, basically using any data set in Australia, inequality is about roughly constant. Mm -hmm. So this doesn't seem to be happening in Australia, but it is -hmm. is happening in other developed countries. But the amount of which that's going up is very small relative to this big global drop in inequality. The other thing that's going up is uh, this – is the the degree to which the the fortunes of the wealthy are going up is happening faster than the fortunes of the poor. So there is this big concentration of wealth at the top. Um, We don't know much about wealth inequality around the world because we don't have good statistics about it. Um, But we should – I think we can guess that wealth inequality is probably going down as well if we measure it by the Gini coefficient or the Atkinson coefficient because, again, wealth follows income and so we have all this income coming. and, and then I guess and then the question I guess is you know what uh I don't want to talk too long uh, but you know but what uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this <laughs> but what you know whether whether that inequality is is in fact a problem or not um and and I think it is associated with some negative social outcome measures as Ida has has stated uh, I've done some research about whether income inequality has a negative impact on economic growth, and we actually find that's not true um uh, and in fact, that it's really the concentration of poverty, which is a lot of the social measures that Ida is talking about is really about disadvantage. Um, and, and I I wish that we would take the conversation around the world in a different direction. So So for whatever reason, we seem to be really focused on the wealth that's being amassed at the top. and And it almost seems to be driven by a kind of envy. Uh, and instead, we've stopped talking about what we used to talk about in the 80s and 90s, which is about, Deprivation and poverty. Um, I don't think a poor peasant in Laos cares how much money Gina Reinhart has. I think the poor peasant in Laos cares about their own life expectancy, whether their children get an education, whether their children can get a job, whether they can get access to clean water. Those are the things that I think we should be talking about.
2: But I, I just want to jump in on that, Bob, because I think I, – I, in some ways, I agree with you and in some ways, I disagree with you on this um, – I think does a does a poor peasant in Laos care about how much Gina Reinhardt has? Well, no, probably not. But we're we're, we're um, doing some research in Indonesia at the moment on childhood poverty, and what poor people in urban areas of Indonesia do seem to be concerned about is the relative poverty that they experience compared with the people who are in the luxurious apartments right next to the slum that they're living in. So we've been working with families who have been displaced so that these these very luxurious apartments can be built and they're living in really awful conditions, you know, where children might go to school but the quality of that schooling is absolutely appalling communities that are characterised by deprivation on every front you can think uh, of, you know, in terms of nutritional status of children, in terms of, of hunger, of access to health care. On all of those things, there's deep, deep deprivation. And they look across the way, and we're talking a couple of hundred metres, and here is real concentration of wealth. Now, not perhaps the Bill Gates or the Gina Mm. Reinhardt nature Mm. of wealth, Mm. but certainly people who are much, much better off. Now, I think you can argue that those people are probably driving the economy in Indonesia, you know, the the, the people who are well off. Mm. But you can see the emergence of serious social problems as a consequence And if we talk about not just economic growth, but issues of well-being and self-worth, which I think are actually really important, then that inequality that's in people's face on a day-to-day basis actually really matters. And I think there are important questions about social cohesion and what inequality means for social cohesion that should worry us all.
0: But I I think the policy response then should be to try to help the poor people to get richer. Rather than tear down the luxury, apartments. or
2: do we need to be thinking about redistribution? I mean, I think you can talk about getting rich, pe- uh, poor people to get richer, and that often leads us to a discussion about resilience and how we can help people cope with shock. That's all very well if you have the the the, the basis on which to build resilience. But if you are a a child who comes from a poor family, who's had terrible quality education, who's had to leave at the age of nine, who's been beaten consistently by parents, teachers, the military, everyone else that surrounds them, you have no prospects for the future, then I find the resilience discussion really problematic. So how do you help that person get richer? Well, there are ways of doing that, but it can't avoid the conversation of redistribution. I think that has to be part of the equation and that has to take us to thinking not just about poverty and I agree with you, we should be talking poverty and deprivation, but we also need to talk about the excess of wealth and where redistribution might fit into that.
5: And the idea, you know, if you have a billionaire or multi-billionaire and if you tax them 70% for example, um, which is what was proposed, they're still at the top 1%. Do they really need those extra funds or should that redistribution Occur. Um, there's a great example that I read a um, few years ago now. About um, it was in the north, in northern Canada, with the Aboriginals, um, Canadian Aboriginals, and there was an oil company that was trying to drill right where a village was. And they kept offering them money. They kept offering them a lot of things because there was no income in that village. Um, they wouldn't consider themselves poor because they had everything to sustain themselves. They had housing. So redefining. Poverty is another question. Um, but they had everything they needed to survive. They had their families, et cetera. And they tried for about a decade or so to move this village over so they could drill. And they just could not succeed. And what they ended up doing was bringing in television sets for and electricity and bringing in a free TV to every household in that village. And within 10 years, all the young people moved out into cities in that village fell apart because the elders couldn't sustain themselves. Um, And the oil company got its land, basically. And so it's how we also talk about progress and GDP growth and income growth and what poverty is, I think, is an important question. Because I would say that that community was actually worse off probably after that income started coming in. And there's examples in Asia as well where the dams go in, the fishing gets reduced in the Mekong. um, So then the males of the family have to go to the cities to work to send back money so that the wives and kids can buy fish for themselves. So um, I think it's how we talk about it. And yes, income inequality has gone down overall in the world. Um, but in some ways, that doesn't matter because income in local areas has gone up significantly. Look at China because they're one of the biggest drivers of that income um, – in qual- global income inequality going down. But within China itself, it's skyrocketed. It's actually about the same as in the US where if you look 20, 30 years ago, it's much lower. And that's it's the same thing. higher. Case. China. Chinese inequality is, is higher than the exactly. US. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that wasn't yep. true 20 years ago. That's right. Um, And I would say if you look at most of the well-being measures for the Chinese population, well-being has gone down in China in a lot of areas overall. So there are some people that are much better off, right?
0: But there are. I, I don't think what you just said is true, but that's okay. We can we can let people who know more about China <laughs> look that up. But certainly, yes. life expectancy has gone way yes, up. Yes, of course it has. Education's been. gone way yes, up. Yes, it has. Uh,
4: if we talk about taxes, at the same time, we also have to talk about tax havens and tax avoidance, tax evasion. Many billionaires that already have a lot of money are trying to avoid paying taxes and they shift their tax affairs to places like Malta or Panama. The Tax Justice Network estimates that global losses from these multinational corporations or people shifting their profits to tax havens is about $500 billion a year. That is a lot of money that could be put towards these kind of societal impact projects Sharon, is it fair that people or corporations try to avoid paying taxes considering that these practices are
2: not necessarily illegal? No, it's not fair. Um, I, I, the, the simple answer is no. The, the longer answer that I would give is I think it is really problematic that large corporations are able to shift their money around and, and not pay taxes because... To me, there are fundamental issues around both social justice but also um, social obligation in terms of how money is accrued and then how it is used and how it is redistributed. But I think the other dimension of this that I find absolutely fascinating and really problematic is that in some cases, certainly not in all cases, but in some cases, those who are seeking to move their money to places where they don't have to pay tax are also those who are interested in engaging in what we might call philanthrop capitalism, in giving their money in certain directions. And to me, this is a, an issue around democracy that's really fundamental, that individuals are able to choose where they put their money, but only on their own terms. And for all the problems that we may have within taxation systems and how money is actually used, at least there is a a greater element, I would argue, of democracy beyond. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to
1: just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: And the kind of the the whim of philanthropic capitalists.
4: Bob, how could uh, governments ensure that billionaires who donate money not only do so to get a relief on their income taxes?
0: So I'm interested, I'm really interested in this question of of how to design tax systems in ways that are fair. I mean it is one of the, the key aspects that we want a tax system to have. So just to step back for a second and – which there are really two reasons we have a tax system, right? One is we have to pay for things that government does. So the government does stuff like education and healthcare. It also does things like regulating monopolies. Someone has got to pay for that and so we have to have some way to do that. The second thing we do with the tax system is we redistribute. And in pretty much every country in the world um, – well, no, I shouldn't say that. Let me back up. <laughs> certainly, certainly in all developed countries, uh, there's a strong taste for redistribution. So people view redistribution as a public good and people want redistribution. Um, and we do that uh, through our tax and, and transfer system. And different countries want different amounts of redistribution. So, for example, before taxes, Australia, Norway – Denmark, Sweden, the U.S. are all roughly the same level of inequality. After taxes, Denmark, Norway, Sweden are much more equal than Australia. Australia is much more equal than the U.S. You could view that as reflecting societal desire for redistribution um, if you thought democracy was working well. And the reason that we redistribute is, you know, why why do we think people are successful? We think they're successful partly um, because they were – helped by a society that allowed them to be successful, so we're asking them to pay that back. We think they're successful because they worked hard, and we think they were successful because they got lucky and they were in the right place, right? And we think it's some combination of those three things. And that argues that people should give back, right? That argues that part of their success is luck, and then part of that they should pay back to society, which I think is what Ida was saying as well, right? Is that these people are still successful. These people are still going to have a lot of money. They can give back. So the question is then how do you build a tax system that does that in a way that's as fair as possible. Um, When we talk – so I know a lot about the Australian tax system running the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute. I think money shifting uh, around tax havens in the world is a huge problem. It's particularly a huge problem in in the poorest countries. So a lot of African billionaires who are moving their money into places where it can't be accessed. So those are countries where that money is really, really needed and it's not being reinvested in the country. It's being put into bank accounts overseas for, for people's benefit. I actually don't think this is a big issue for Australia. I, th- I think this is a distraction for Australia. The number of Australians who are doing this is actually really small, and the amount of money we're talking about is really, really small. The two big things we should be thinking about in Australia. The other distraction is thinking about the top headline rate. So this idea of, you know, we should tax them seventy percent. This is in Australia again. This is not. This is not interesting. Um, I would parenthetically note that you probably don't want to tax them 70% because they are going to move away. Um, no tennis stars from France live in France. No French movie stars live in France. No French national soccer team players live in France, right? It's probably some exception. But, but for mostly, that's true, right? So there is some limit to which you can, you can kind of tax people and they're, and they're not going to move. But I, I, in Australia, so, so, so just to – I guess the, the, the one point I would make in Australia is that if, if you want to make the Australian tax system more fair, the two places you want to look – are all of the exemptions that we give to people for different kinds of income. We give – it's at least $100 million of exemptions. No, it's more than that. It's at least $100 billion of exemptions away. Um, over half of that goes to the top 10% of the population. So all you, you could simplify the tax code. You'd make, it, you'd make it less exemptions for people. You'd make the system a lot fairer. The second place you want to look is the way that we tax savings and wealth. Um, which at the moment is actually regressive. The way we tax savings actually gives money, takes money from poor people and gives money to rich people. So neither of those things are about tax havens. None of them are about top income rates but they're about system design and thinking about the whole tax system.
3: Trevor Burrus I was going to shift it a bit as Bob said that um, the role of governments, particularly the role of governments in Australia. Governments, of course, need revenue, Mm -hmm. but here we often have the case where governments are uh, offering to lower the tax rate, company tax rate, income tax Mm -hmm. uh, benefits, and so on. A lot of work tries to go in to stop people shifting money abroad and all the rest of it, but we think of the example in Australia right now. You got any comment on the role of governments and how they need to cope with this?
5: Yeah, so I believe in this is a personal opinion that the role of government is actually to ensure the well-being of the entire population. And that includes the rich and the businesses and the poor. So we can't make the taxes sky high because, as Bob said, um, people would move away, right? And we see this somewhat in China um, happening because of air pollution and other things. People are just moving away when a certain tolerance is reached. But the government's role is to ensure the well-being of Um, the entire population. And so what is that sweet spot or what is a solution to be able to redistribute um, some of that wealth um, to the poor that really do need it? Um, And going back sort of to the idea where a billionaire probably doesn't need all his billions. Um, they are still at or the or her billions is very true. <laughs> sorry, um, they're still probably going to be at the top one percent of society. So there was a great interview with a CEO of one of these multi-billion-dollar companies when the crash happened in the U.S. in two thousand, in the two thousands, and he said, "Don't take away our salary because that's how we get our status." That's how we compete in within the CEO world. That's how we get – but just tax us a lot of that because then we still say, well, we have that status, but a lot of that money is distributed. And that's, this was one of the billionaires um, that was saying this, understanding that that redistribution had to happen. And so I think it's the role of government to actually ensure that um, that can happen.
2: But I think if we're thinking of the role of government in that way, we need to think about more than just the taxation system. And obviously the taxation system is an important part of that. But if we're thinking about redistribution, we also need to think about the social security system and social policy more broadly. So not just how we might be taxing the wealthiest and and shifting that money around, but how we are supporting and how we are treating those who are at the bottom. And Ida, you you talked about status. You know, Mm -hmm. the people's status that I worry most about those people who are on Start in Australia, or those people who have to go into Centrelink and battle bureaucracy and stigma in order to get what are really tiny amounts of money that barely support them. So I think if we're thinking about the role of government. It's about how do we promote jo- social justice and some level of equality so people can compete, people can engage with, with the economy um, for those who are, who are really in need. And I think in Australia, we've Move to more a more punitive approach to the way we think about um, social welfare. And we certainly see that in places like the United Kingdom, where there's been really the dismantling of the welfare state, the introduction of the universal credit scheme, which is really damaging poor people. And that's regardless of what we might say about taxation.
0: And we don't spend enough time working out what works and what doesn't work right i yeah, mean you right. know or i think in australia there's an a, a quiet educational crisis um pisa scores are slipping and you talk about the future for poor people it's got to be coming from the public education system we've got to be a lot more inventive about trying new things in public education we got to test them we got to throw out what doesn't work put more money into what does work um, i would say the same thing with aboriginal policy i would say the same thing with employment policy so so yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think some of these things, we just spend the money and we say our job is done, but it's not. We need to make sure we're, we're actually being effective.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
4: If I can bring this back again to this a a topic that you discussed right at the beginning of the podcast, uh, income inequality and social inequality. So back in 2013, then US President Barack Obama said that the defining issue of our time would be inequality. Um, Sharon, can you go a bit deeper into what are some of the social costs that arise from inequality?
2: Well, I think there are there are a range of issues that um, arise from social inequality. i talked a lot, and I think we'll probably talk again about well-being. And I think there are a whole range of issues around access to opportunity that arise from inequality and from the concentration of poverty amongst particular groups. One of the, the consequences that we see from social inequality in a country like Australia, for example, and Bob mentioned Indigenous communities, is not just the economic disadvantage, but the social disadvantage and the absolute despair that people and groups of people fall into when their situation is so unequal. And I think there we do need to think beyond income to... Um, access to to services, to just a sense of self-worth and human dignity. And when inequality plays out in ways that distract, detracts from people's self-worth, then I think it impacts on every aspect of their lives and it, as, and it impacts on the nature of a society. I think it has a corrosive effect on societies and social cohesion.
5: So it has, um, just following up on that, it has a Impact on society as a whole, but it's um, a lot of research recently has shown that it has a lot of impact on the, an individual as well living in, um, in an unequal society um, and for example, studies have shown that narcissism um, goes up quite significantly as inequality goes up, and this is in the new book by um, Richard Wilkinson, Kate Pickett, um, the inner level. But they show basically that a lot – the impact on individuals is extraordinary as the area within which people live um, becomes more unequal. So it's societal impacts but it's also individual impacts
3: just going to get you to add to that. Do you think governments listen enough to the people who are actually affected by low income and inequality? And um, there, there are many good people and organizations out there articulating some of it, but it's the government that has to decide.
5: I actually think that um, everybody's impacted by inequality, um, both the poor and the rich. Um, but yes, it will impact the poor a lot more, especially because of lack of um, social services in many cases. Um, I think the government it's it's hard for the government um, to look at everybody so a lot of the well-being studies or any kind of measures that are done are done at a state national level and that those measures often miss out those people that are most in need and most at risk um, so if you look at well-being studies and measures um, majority are done at state and mm-hmm. national level you're not going to pick up you know look at life satisfaction there's a good portion, it's not significant, but there are some people that say my life satisfaction is zero. But I think
2: if you if you think about the people who are at the top end as well in terms of inequality, the outcomes are often not great there at an individual and a societal level. If you think of a country like South Africa or a country like Brazil, where inequality plays out in multiple ways, you know, not not only income you know the, the the gated communities and the security risks that the wealthy face on a day to day basis is not a particularly appealing way to live either, and so I think the consequences for individuals are right across society
5: definitely.
4: Bob Warren Buffett, the third wealthiest person on the Forbes list instead of demanding tax cuts, famously bemoaned that dynastic wealth, the enemy, the enemy of meritocracy is on the rise and that equality of opportunity has been on the decline. What is your opinion about this kind of trend? What can be done to make sure that the family that you were born into isn't the decisive factor on the future of your career and your income?
0: So again, I, I, I worry about both of those things a lot. Um, I also worry that we don't really know what the trends are. Um, certainly, if you were born in the 13th century in France, it made a lot of difference whether you were born to the king or, or born to a feudal peasant, um, and, and there was no mobility. Um, so, anyone who says mobility has gone down, at least at that level, it's gone up, right? Now, maybe it's gone down. And so, I just don't again, I just don't think we measure these things very well, but, but I think we should worry about them. I absolutely think we should worry about them. And I, and I think the way that despair plays out in inequality really has to do with whether people feel like they're going to have a chance or not. So so if this inequality if inequality means that you feel that you're never going to have a chance to get up, then that's going to be something that's going to drive despair. Whereas inequality in and of itself, if you think that someday you can get there, um, may be something that people can live with. And we all live with a certain, you know, there's a kind of good amount of inequality, right? I mean, if you walked into the classroom on day 1 in a class and I said, "It doesn't matter how you work, I'm going to give everybody a 50." you probably wouldn't work very hard and and if and if x ex- if at the end of the class after everybody if after you worked really hard and, and deserved a high distinction and i said well you know i don't want there to be any equal- equality i'm going to give you a 50 you would you would feel hard done by you would say well hang on i want to be recognized for the efforts i've done so so we, so inequality is also an important motivator in terms of of people striving against one another and it is what produces excellence in our society um, so so i i don't The counterfactual is not sort of a world without inequality, but the counterfactual is one where inequality doesn't become a prison. Um, And and so I think that there are two keys. One key is um, the thing that government can do, and this is really something for government, is to make sure that being born into a poor family is not a death sentence, right? And that's about access to health care, access to housing, access to education, access to jobs, right? And I don't think that, as I said before, I'm not sure our government programs do that as well as they could. I think we need to be a lot more innovative in what we're doing and maybe spend more money as well, right? I'm certainly, you know, if you say to me, you're going to pay more tax, but what it's going to do is it's going to really pump a lot of money into education for young poor kids so that they get a better chance. I'm all for that, right? And I think, and I think most people would be like, that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. The other thing you mentioned, I'll just briefly comment on is dynastic wealth. Which again, is that going up or down? I'm not sure we have really good measures of that. But that we do worry about, right? So someone who works hard, makes a lot of money, gets rewarded because they did a really good job. I think a lot of people are not upset about that. Um, Other people, you know, Paris Hilton, Gina Reinhart, who just happened to be born in a super wealthy family, Donald Trump, um, inherit lots of money. That somehow seems unfair. And and I think – that a good solution to that is, is a death tax, um, which Australia used to have but currently doesn't have. And one of the problems with death duties is that people find lots of ways to go around them and not end up paying them. But y- if we could come up with some creative and innovative ways to tax, uh, to tax people, then that is going to pr- both break down that overall inequality but also remove that problem of dynastic wealth.
3: And that's the perfect opportunity to ask you all in turn if you had one piece of advice to offer governments on what to do with billionaires – what would that one piece of advice be, ida
5: I would actually go back to finding a fair way to um, – whether it's tax the billionaires or whether it's to get rid of the exceptions that they can have. But um, ensure that everybody pays their fair share. Um, and I think a big issue there is inequality of opportunity. Um, and so try to equalize that as much as possible. Bob?
0: I'd like a tax system that's fair um, and that applies equally to everybody. Uh, And I don't mean everyone pays an equal amount of tax. I mean there's vertical equity, so richer people pay more tax. And the government pays a lot more attention to equality of opportunity. Sharon?
2: Don't let them make policy decisions. And I think this is one of the real (laughs) issues. Just because you are rich and have made a fortune in the corporate sector doesn't mean you are good at making public policy, and yet we are seeing increasing influence by billionaires over policy. So let's stop that as a first step. Get money out of politics. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much for
4: this very interesting discussion, Ida, Bob and Sharon. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank
2: you.
1: So my thanks once again to our guests there, Ida Kupaszewski, Bob Brunig, and Sharon Bessel. I thought it was a really fascinating discussion that covered a very broad range of issues that are raised by that very provocative question. Um, what did you think of it, listeners? Get in contact with us. You can reach us on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, on our Facebook group. Sign up, join the gang, Policy Forum Pod on Facebook, or just shoot us through an email. We are podcast at podcast policyforum.net. And if you were uh, interested in some of the things that we've talked about today, one thing you might want to check out is a short course that's offered here at Crawford School. It's called The Introduction to the Economics of Tax Policy. Uh, And it's actually done by uh, Bob Brunick, who was our guest today. It's happening on the 6th and 7th of March. It's a two-day course. um, And you can find out all about why we have a tax and transfer system, what the tax landscape looks like, looks like in Australia and where government revenue comes from. So it's the introduction to the economics of tax policy, and you can find it if you go to crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash executive dash education. So at the end of each podcast, we go over some of your questions and comments that you have left for us either on uh, about our podcasts or on our website, policyforum.net. And I'm lucky enough to still have Yulia and Bob with me here to unpick some of these. And the first I want to talk about is last week's podcast, which was called The Policy and Politics of Refugees and Asylum Seekers. And it had Uh, Mark Kinney, Marion Dickey and Bina DaCosta, fabulous lineup And in the podcast, the panellists discussed the global scale of the refugee crisis and whether Australia has got its policy settings right. And they looked at offshore processing, the politicization of refugees, the recent Medivac bill, and how all these issues might play out in the upcoming federal election. We had lots of interest and lots of feedback on this, but I just want to pick out a few comments. There was a Comment by Magami Paul on our Facebook podcast group, and he wrote Great insight. Having worked in the refugee camp, I associate myself with some comments. Bad policies account for inequalities among citizens. In Kenya, currently, multi corporation companies have started taking over government assets for their own interests. Uh, there was a comment from At Sal underscore Super on Twitter, who wrote, Truth went out of fashion in about 1974. And another comment by Indo Ross Taylor on Twitter, who said, We put 13-year-old Indonesian children in high-security male prisons for up to two years without trial. Apparently, they were, quote-unquote, people smugglers at 13. So a broad range of views there. Perhaps I'll turn to you first, Julia. What's your take on some of those uh, comments?
4: Yeah, really some very thoughtful and interesting comments here. I think particularly one of on the, um, the second comment that truth went out of fashion, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's quite sad to see that these kind of issues are so highly politicized and kind of used to win political campaigns nowadays and not to make good and fair policy.
1: Well, we live in a post-truth world. What about you, Bob? What did you yeah, make? Taking
3: that one first, that one first Martin, I, it reminded me very much when we say truth went out of fashion about 1974. I was reminded of George Orwell's novel 1984, and if you like, that posited a future where it was all about truth and the importance of truth and the importance of truth in politics. And the podcast last week was really a superb one because it is important to track our way through and keep keep a firm eye on the facts here because the Medivac bill, for example, had to be made quite clear to people that it only applied to existing populations of refugees on Manus and Nauru, not anywhere else but it was taken out and beaten to high heaven in the current political environment. So we need to keep our minds and uh, opportunities open for making sure that we do get a humane policy. We Australia can do a humane policy as well to keep our borders secure. And in addition to all of this, we never talk about the over 60,000 people seeking refugee status already in Australia who managed to get in Australia through the ordinary routes. So it's sort of well, well out of proportion and very much for political purposes.
1: Earlier in the podcast, you you, know, you despaired about some of the quality of uh, the politics playing out in Australia at the moment. Do you have hold out any hope that a humane asylum seeker or a refugee policy might be a feature in any way, shape or form in the upcoming federal election?
3: I actually have to say to you, I don't expect it to feature prominently in the election campaign itself. But I do hope that the result of the election gives us a chance to get a more stable and sensible policy. And to do that, we need to be actively engaged with our region. All the solutions we've tried over the years, the Malaysian solution and all the rest has become subject to that. We have to be much more active and much more caring and get the balance right.
1: And I just want to pick up on, if I can, the comment there from Mugambi Paul talking about um, bad policies account for inequality among citizens. What do you think about that, Bob?
3: I think it's true, and I think um, bad policies d- do lead to inequalities and inequality leads to relative status of power and opportunity to advance yourself, to participate in a political process or a power structure that gives you the chance to make those sort of decisions. And so people without the resources who are well down the system are going to find it very hard to make an impact. It's a constant battle, and it's a constant battle in many societies. Democracies hopefully have learned to do it better, but not always.
1: So thanks once again to everyone who left us a comment there, Megami the pool Sal Super on Twitter, and Indo Ross Taylor. We really appreciate all of those. The next thing I want to turn to is some suggestions, some ideas from our members of our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. Do sign up. Do come and join us there. Uh, And there's been some great suggestions of podcasts that we might want to tackle in the future. So let me just run over a few of them and then I'll get the two of your thoughts on this. There was a suggestion from Faith, who said we should have a look at child protection and parenting support, addressing adverse childhood experiences. There's one from Daniel, who looked who suggested we look at Australian-American relations. That's a, obviously a big issue. Uh, Jonathan Thompson suggested that we have ta- we tackle more domestic health and social policy, please. And Aruna said uh, would be very interested in a podcast of the effect of media on public policy. Julia, what do you reckon about those?
4: I think personally that the effect of media and public policy is a particularly interesting one because um, as we've talked about refugee issues, just then the media plays such a huge role in displaying these kinds of issues in a certain way. And also something that came up in in my research for um, this podcast that we just um, went through, is that um, particularly if some like politicians say a certain thing, it's often picked up by media outlets without uh, questioning the actual truth behind it, and I think um, that is one of the big things that we ne- that need addressing.
1: Well, Donald Trump, of course, is the classic example of that, and the uh, uh, many websites in the US that are tracking the let me say, alternative facts that he, uh, that he speaks to. What about you, Bob? Which of those took your fancy?
3: Uh, Well, just on the last one, of course, what Donald Trump is doing is the trick of dictators and uh, the demagogues throughout the history, and that's the sort of methods he's using. And it is destructive in its own way, and it needs to be combated. I think certainly the effect of media on public policy is absolutely worth doing. The one on adverse childhood experiences and pairing support, I always think on that one of the Indigenous community, because I think that's a particularly difficult one to get your mind around, and how do you actually get that care for child children in that sort of society? Australian-American relations, where the hell to start with that one? There's plenty to talk about. I would come at it just from the point of view of revisiting the Australian-American alliance right now. What does it mean in a kind of Trump world? And I think we need to think quite hard about what it does mean and how we take it forward. And, of course, uh, always good topics, domestic health and social policy issues.
1: So loads of great suggestions there. And please do keep them coming in because we really appreciate them. They help us think about what we want to do on future podcasts. They are inspirational to us. So thanks for that. Uh, Faith, Daniel, Jonathan and Aruna. And if you've got an idea for a podcast, jump onto our podcast group, join the gang. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook and we will be really keen to hear your thoughts and suggestions. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about the podcast. All you've got to do is find that fifth star, say something nice about us, preferably, if you can, um, and uh, that, w- that would be a big help. So we will be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio.
4: See you next time from Yulia.
1: And goodbye from Bob. See you again soon.